our calling, our ministry as a congregation is to bring the good news to the Jewish people, to be a representation of faith that does so in a Jewish way. We do not make any apologies about that. I know that over the time and over history, there have been some here and in other places who are not Jewish, who are oftentimes offended by that. But they ought not to be. They rather ought to be excited by the fact that here's a congregation of people, Jews and non-Jews alike, for whom the Jewish people is preeminent in their hearts and in their minds. It isn't unlike those, and I've been with many missionaries, who, for example, serve in other countries, such as China, for whom, if you met them, you would think that they have lived all their lives in China. They are so excited about bringing the good news to the people of China or to the people of Australia or to the people of Pakistan. I have a student, uh, a young woman, I guess now she's in her upper or mid-twenties, hope she doesn't hear this passage or this message, because she might say, I am only 20-something, Mr. D, but I can't remember exactly, time goes by, and she was one of my students, and she also had attended our church back east, but she has such a burden for the Pakistani people, so much so that during all of the duress and all of the challenges and all of the terrorism that is going on on the borders of Pakistan and Afghanistan. There she went off on a plane to serve in a school to teach young people and to be a light of Messiah in a place that I would never, ever desire to go. Of course, now, probably the Lord is saying, oh, really? But the fact of the matter is, I can't believe that she had gone over there at such a time, in fact, she sat with me and talked with me about it, and I said, Emily, I really think you ought to think twice, three times, four times. Five. There's plenty of Pakistani people in the United States. Why do you have to go all the way over into Pakistan itself? And she said, Mr. D, I just feel this tug on my heart. I have such a love for those people. I need to be there. I wasn't offended by that. Why should I be offended that she would be called by God to bring the good news to the people of Pakistan. And now she's raising support. She's praying about getting back there again. And I get these letters from her just asking me to continue to lift her up in prayer. And I'm not offended by that at all. There are individuals who are called all kinds of places in the world. And Yeshua gave us our marching orders. He said, make disciples of all nations. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we don't have to apologize any more than any other individuals who feel called to a distinct and particular people to bring the good news to them. We don't have to apologize for the degree to which we want to make sure the good news is clearly presented to our people. But I know that there are some who get offended, some here that sometimes get offended, but they shouldn't and they are wrong to be offended. Forget about their sensibilities. It's all about God's calling on our lives and the scriptural injunction. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. We know that is fully inclusive of all people. And what an exciting thing for individuals from our congregation to be involved in a ministry to Cubans, some of whom are Jewish, but the bulk of which are probably not. Praise God for our representation as a Messianic congregation, through our giving and through our prayers and through our encouragement, that the people of Cuba, some of those people, heard the good news. Some of the earliest 
Missionaries, you may or may not realize, were Jewish believers. Some of the earliest of them, talking about from the 19th century, the time of the modern missionary movement, when it began. Some of them were rabbis who came to faith and felt called of God to go to China. That have felt called of God, I can't remember their names now, but I remember to Jamaica. Called of God, yes, to bring the gospel to Jewish people as well, to all people. And so we make no apologies, I make no apologies for the fact that Beth Ariel is a messianic congregation and our first foremost calling is to make sure that our people, the Jewish people, when they come in here, they hear the good news in a way in which it resonates with who they are. There are plenty of churches, there are a hundred churches for every messianic congregation where they can hear the good news in a way in which we might describe as a Gentile presentation. Nothing wrong with that. I praise God for all of those presentations that are going on. That the word of God is being brought forth to the peoples of the world, in our communities and the communities around. But we have a distinctive calling that is prompted by the word of God. And that's always first and foremost. That resonates in our hearts by the work of the spirit. That we must be about the task of making sure our people, Israel, hear the Word of God, understand what it means, and are moved to embrace it. And one of the greatest ways in which Jewish people have come to faith is because they see other Jewish people like themselves who have taken the step, made the plunge, and have entered into the world of faith and the family of God by believing in Yeshua. It isn't just by someone up here flapping their gums and saying the right words. It's about we as a congregation of people who are impressive to those who come in. Why are we as a congregation impressive? Is it because we are more knowledgeable than the next body of people? Absolutely not. It's because the Spirit of God, we pray, shows up. And the impressiveness is a manifestation of His presence, not our own. It's the manifestation of His truth, not our ideas. It's the manifestation of His power, not of our conjuring up of emotional energy. Not that there's anything wrong with emotional energy. Not that there's anything wrong with some wisdom. Not that there's anything wrong with some opinions that we might have. But that is not what we are about. If we were, all we would need to do is say the word and people ought to respond. But it's much more complicated than that. It involves God showing up and individuals being yielded to his word. Now, often when we look at a passage like Romans 1.16, what we oftentimes focus on, and I have to some degree this morning, is the word first. The gospel, the good news, the message of Messiah, the message that includes the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. We focus on the firstliness of what Yeshua is, uh, what Paul is writing. There's no problem with that. The word, of course, is proton, which doesn't mean first in chronological order. So as to say that before we can bring the gospel anywhere else, we have to first make sure the Jewish people hear it. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is the message is preeminently a message for the Jewish people. That's what the word here means. It is a gospel that is preeminently Jewish in nature and in scope. That's why when Messiah came, he sent out his disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Matthew 10. He instructed them, do not go. 
Hard to believe. Can you imagine if one of us said that here? Do not go to the Gentiles. Do not go to the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now things have changed. Yeshua then changes his marching orders and says, go into all the world to all peoples. I got that. But what I am impressed with is that there was a time when he said, do not, but do. And what is it we ought to do or his disciples were to do to make sure the Jewish people heard? Why? Because the gospel is preeminently a good news message for them. It is by default a message to the Gentile world. That's what Romans 11 says, that because they rejected the message, that is our people, God then utilized that rejection to propel the message to the Gentile world, the four corners of the earth, and that's where we are today. And we are waiting for these Gentiles to do their job in embracing Messiah because the times of the Gentiles will not end until that last Gentile individual becomes a believer in Messiah. And so when it is done, Scripture tells us, God's attention will turn in full measure. Now it's in partial measure. That's why some of us who are Jews are believing. But then God will turn his attention in full measure toward his people, and all Israel shall be saved. Just remarkable. And so the word first means preeminent. And if we can get it into our hearts that this is a preeminent Jewish message it would change the way we study God's Word. It would change the way we think of God's Word. It would change the way we desire to present God's Word. And it would change the way we desire to worship God in response to His Word by giving praise, honor, and glory to our Lord. If we really had a sense of the firstliness, the preeminentness of the good news. But that's not what I want to focus on this morning. What I want to focus on, because I learned something new, and that is this word, I am not ashamed. I was struck by that because last week when I spoke of Daniel's prayer, he said, we have shamed you, Lord, by our sin. And it stuck with me. It resonated with me. So I started reflecting on the meaning of what it means to be ashamed, the meaning of Paul's word here. And the word means, it, let me say, it does not mean to have this inner feeling, you know, when you feel embarrassed by something. That's not what Paul, Paul is talking about. He's not saying that he's not embarrassed by the good news. Rather, he's saying the word means to be disgraced. And so his point is, I am not disgraced by identifying myself with the Messiah of Israel who has come, who has given his life for me. He feels no disgrace, no belittling. He feels none of those things that would serve to keep us from proclaiming the word is what he's talking about. Now, when I looked at certain other passages, this idea of being disgraced comes to the fore. Take a look at some of these things. I've not seen this before, uh, but I was moved by it. And in the final minutes, let me share with you a couple of passages. Look at Mark chapter 8, for example. In Mark chapter 8, we're looking at verse 34. 
Then Messiah called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, keep in mind, the cross in the first century was a symbol, a representation of execution. That's like today saying you need to take up your electric chair. You need to take up your gas chamber. He's saying that we ought to be willing to face our own demise and our death. Look what he says. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and be willing to die for me, is what he's saying. And follow me. Look at this. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the good news will save it. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Look at this. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, there's that phrase again, and funny, it jumps out, will be ashamed of him, disgraced by him. But here's the question. How might we disgrace our master? He tells us right here. If we fail to deny ourselves and take up a self-sacrificial sense about our lives for the glory of our Savior and Lord. Think about that. He's telling us that we are, in a sense, maybe not in a sense, but I'm hesitant to say this, but we are disgracing our God. If we would commit ourselves to him any less, he says, than in denying ourselves and being willing to give up even our very lives for him. Notice what he says. What good is it if we invest all of our energies, all of our desires in the things of this world, he says. It's one who loses his life who will find it. It's one who gives up his prerogatives, who will enjoy life to the fullest as God desires. So here we start a new year. The question is, Paul said, I am not ashamed. And so what did Paul do to demonstrate his lack of being ashamed of the good news? He gave his life into the hands of the Messiah and served him from that point to the end of his days. Suffered greatly in the process, sacrificed a great deal, gave up much of his own prerogatives and his own desires, his own comforts, his own schedules, you might say so that the good news might be proclaimed. This is one of those hard sayings of Messiah. But Romans 1.16 is no less hard. For if we are to be like Paul, if we are to allow him to be our example, as he tells us to, follow my example, we have to ask ourselves, are we not ashamed of the good news? And if we are not, how are we demonstrating that? Are we indeed denying our own personal desires? Not all of which are bad. I'm not suggesting that. 
but our own personal preferences. And those personal preferences get in the way of our ability to fulfill the marching orders of our Lord. Go into all the world, make disciples. That is our job. That's what Messiah told us to do. He did not merely say, go into the world and praise my name. If he did, that would be easy. If he told us to go into the world and study my word well, that you know it from back, backwards and forwards. If he did, that would be easy. But what he tells us is, make disciples. That's hard. How do you make disciples? Have we made disciples? When is the last time you made a disciple? Who are you presently discipling? Who am I presently discipling? I'm not just pointing the finger at you. Please forgive me if I appear to be. But I'm asking the same question to myself. You can put a mirror right up there in the center of the aisle and I'll look at me. The point is we have a calling. And our calling is not just to enjoy our faith, although there's nothing wrong with that. But our marching orders, and we say it every worship time, you are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And our witnessing of him is not merely articulating its truth, but investing ourselves in the lives of others that we make disciples of all nations. It's really pretty intense stuff, isn't it? And it's really marvelous when you look at this. Take a look at another passage. This is really quite remarkable because Messiah never asks us to do anything he himself has not done. When he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, he did exactly that, didn't he? When he tells us to be his witnesses, he did exactly that, didn't he? When he tells us to lose our lives to find it, he did exactly that. But he did something else that we often... I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say take for granted, but maybe just simply overlook most of the time. But take a look at Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, check this out. Talk about the word shame. In verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect, Through suffering, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. That's a credible statement. The one who makes us holy and the ones made holy are of the same family of Messiah. Think about that. He does not mind calling himself the son of man. He does not mind stating that we are his family members. And look at this verse. So Yeshua is not ashamed To call them brethren. Think about that. The Messiah of Israel was not disgraced by taking on human form. Because he did not take on sin. But he took on humanity. And was not ashamed by it. Did not disgrace him as the son of man. And as one not ashamed of humanity, what does he do? He's made perfect through suffering. And look at the passages that follow it. So I will declare your name, that's not all it says, to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. In the presence of the congregation, to my brothers. In other words, he's connected to people. He comes into the world. 
He's not ashamed to identify with humanity, to connect himself in people. He demonstrates his lack of being shamed by becoming a human being by doing what? Suffering, serving God, and uniting us unto the Lord himself. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. This sense of not being ashamed is always connected to serving and giving up something. Look at chapter 11. I think it's around verse 16 or so. Let's go up a little bit before. But he says, all these people, that is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. What was it about these people that God was not disgraced by? They sought a heavenly home. They did not invest themselves fully in the world in which they found themselves. They did not go back home because it was easier. They rather were willing to go to a land they had no knowledge to which they were going, to settle in a land they were foreigners and strangers, to believe a promise God had made that he would make his descendants like the stars in heaven, though he only had one child. And God was proud of them. He was not ashamed of them. And they demonstrated their glory in God and their lack of shame in God, if we could say that, by giving up what they had. Let me share with you just a couple of other passages, and we'll call it. Because I was just so moved. But I always thought about, I'm not ashamed. Well, I'm not ashamed. I'll stand up for God. But that's not what it means. It means more than just saying, I'll stand up for God. It means, I will give up for God. And I'll do and go as he calls. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says, Paul says to Timothy, do not be ashamed, look at this, to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But how do we show we're not ashamed of God? How do we show we're not ashamed of our fellow workers? Paul, he tells us. He says, but Join with me in suffering for the good news. And that by the power of God. It's amazing, isn't it? I almost feel like an unbeliever reading these words. I got to tell you. Because I don't feel like I really suffer, you know. And I'm not sure I really give up much. But that's what these men, Messiah, is talking about. The writer of Hebrews, that's what he's talking about. Paul, that's what he's talking about. Look further in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. We looked at verse 8. He continues this thrust. Remember, he's writing to Timothy, to whom he entrusts much of his ministry. He says, and of this good news, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, a teacher. That is why I am suffering, yet I am not ashamed. Because I know in whom I've believed, I am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. Now go down to verse 16. He says, may the Lord show mercy to the household of 
Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Is that amazing? He says, this man was not ashamed of me, and I can prove it to you. He gave up of himself for me. And if it wasn't for him, I could not have endured the trial and suffering that I endured. May God's mercy and grace rest on him. So we look at a passage like Romans 1.16. We oftentimes focus on the firstliness, the preeminence of the good news. But maybe we are missing the heart and soul of what Paul is really writing about. And that is the not ashamed of the good news. None of us here, if I had asked, anyone here ashamed? We'd all raise our hands. Not, a, not at all. Or anyone that's not ashamed, or however it should be said. We would say, I'll stand up for the Lord. But when we look at how these individuals demonstrated their sense of identification with the Lord, It was by denying themselves. It was by not preeminently investing themselves in this world. It was by identifying with others, such as Onesiphorus, who identified so strongly with Paul that he came to his aid and was there alongside of him. He told Timothy, do not be ashamed of me, but join me in my suffering." So where are we going with all of this? Well, my thought is this. We have a calling here at Beth Ariel. I think, and someone mentioned this to me. I don't know who it was. I'm going to say he's not here, so if it's wrong, he still gets blamed for it. I think it was John Hicks who said to me that it was Charles Spurgeon, so we'll end up ultimately blaming him. And I'm not sure if I got the right guy, but it's some famous guy like Charles Spurgeon and who said... The job of a pastor, the job of a congregational leader, a messianic rabbi, is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Now, I don't do a whole lot of afflicting the comfortable, but I should. Because if I don't, I'm not afflicting myself enough either. And I'll be content with what comes rather naturally and is a reflection of what is a talent and a gift without heart and soul. And the scripture tells us we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It isn't enough to just give out of our strengths. We must give out of our heart, our soul, our mind. We must give from our very depths. I'm not talking about money. Please don't misunderstand me, although I want to say something about that in a moment. What I'm talking about is us. We give of ourselves easily where it's comfortable but doesn't afflict us. So that if our schedules are a problem, they take precedent. When it comes to, oftentimes, forgive me if I'm misspeaking, when it comes to service to our Lord. So we can't make this meeting because I have something else on the agenda, or I live too far, or it's just too hard, I'm just too tired, or I just have other things I need to do. 
And I understand that because I say the same thing. So I'm not speaking to you alone. I'm looking at me as well. But it's time that we stopped doing that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's time that we took an honest inventory of who we are as members of Messiah's family. Are we denying ourselves? Are we truly willing to take up our crosses and die to ourselves? Are we really not investing ourselves in the things of this world? Are we truly setting a place in heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt, where things will endure for all of eternity? Are we really willing to suffer so that Messiah might be made known? Are we really willing to do those things? For if we are not, this is what we'll have. I've said to the leadership as we've met together, the strategies, disciplines, and priorities we have set to get us here will not get us there. It's got us this far, and it will sustain us at this point. But if we want to go to the next level, if we want to move to a point in which we are making a dramatic, not a casual happenstance, occasional impact on the lives of people. But if we want to make a dramatic impact on the lives of people and in our community and particularly among our people, Israel, it's going to take more than what we are doing presently. What we are doing presently will result in what we are getting presently. But if we desire more, it will mean we must give of ourselves more. Again, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about us as individuals who are willing to give up of ourselves, to spend the time truly in prayer, to spend the time connecting with others, spending time to figure out how do I utilize my gifts to the benefit of the body and to outreach to our community. We must answer those questions. We must face those limitations that we are observing, and we've got to move differently, and we've got to move ahead. That's what I think, and that's what I think God would have us to do. It will necessitate change, and that change must first start within and then work its way out to the rest of the body here and to our community out there. And that's what I'm concerned about. We have a calling to go into the world. Our world is Los Angeles. Maybe that's too broad. The Valley, the West Valley. (laughs) But we have a calling to make disciples. We need to be about that task. Would you not agree? We don't have to feel guilty about this. But this is God's word to us, isn't it? He says, Paul says, I'm not ashamed. And what did that mean? Well, it meant the life that he lived. And that's what it means for us too. No less and no more. And so we saw operations or outreaches like that in Cuba because individuals gave of themselves. Individuals gave of their resources to help send them and others and the whole team. And they gave of their time and they used their talent, etc. Well, that's something of it. But I can't peer into each one of those individuals' hearts. They have to answer to God themselves, individually. But I do know what God's word teaches, 
And not being ashamed means more than simply not being afraid to talk about Messiah. It means a relinquishing of very valuable things that we hold on to that keep us from serving him as we should, which is, in effect, being ashamed of him, if I understand God's word correctly. So we need to pray for our congregation. We need to pray for one another that the Lord will move us forward as a body in this direction of service and of giving unto him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are grateful for your grace toward us. And may we demonstrate our gratitude for what you have done for us in use of our, use of our resources for your honor and glory. We have already done much of that, but there's so much to be done to bring the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in this area. And here it is, the beginning of a new year, and we're reminded that the good news is to the Jew first, also 